Luke chapter 22, um, the Lord Jesus has gathered his disciples together for the Passover meal during which he uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. We looked at those verses a couple of months ago when we introduced some changes to how we observe communion together as a church. And so um, today we're looking at verses 24 through 38, Luke 22 verses 24 through 38. Uh, where Luke now continues to recount details that occurred on the same evening. Uh, So before we read, let me uh, offer a brief prayer, and then we'll read this text together. Let's pray. Lord, we we desperately need you now. We we need to understand the significance of this occasion when your word is opened up and preached. Make us aware of the fact that You are present here to speak your word to our hearts. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, Come, Holy Spirit, and apply your word to our hearts and draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for his sake we pray. Amen. Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. One of the things Luke does as he tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry is he he plants clues along the way to help us as readers know what's coming. And so we've seen some of these clues along the way. 
Some of the, the original disciples may have not understood these clues until after the fact. And so as we read, we, we see these clues to get an indication of, of, of where Jesus is headed and what's coming next, even as we watch these mystified disciples follow Jesus. One of the clues that we have mentioned again and again was planted in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus told his disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem and then he set his face to go. And, 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 and that clue sheds light upon everything that has taken place up to this point and everything that's going to take place after this point in Luke's gospel. There's another clue, one that I don't think we've mentioned since we looked at the passage, and it's all the way back in Luke chapter 4, after uh, Jesus' wilderness temptation. Uh, when Jesus conquered the evil one, uh, we're told in chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Now, it's not as though Satan has been altogether absent. We have seen dark and, and demonic forces at work and Jesus overcoming them throughout Luke's gospel. But what Luke is telling us is that this confrontation with Jesus that seemed to exhaust Satan's powers to bring him down so that Jesus was left standing victorious. Luke is saying, keep your eyes open for the opportune time because Satan is going to return again to try to bring Jesus down. And I think it's interesting when you get to Luke chapter 22, I think Luke makes it fairly obvious that the opportune time has come. We're going to see that today in our text, but we're also going to see it, Lord willing, next week when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying. Uh, but just notice with me how Satan reappears and as it were steps back onto the center stage here in Luke 22. In verse 3 at the beginning of this chapter we're told Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. And in verse 22 Jesus is saying the son of man goes as it has been determined <coughs> but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Satan has won over Judas Iscariot. You see this idea again in verse uh, 31, Satan's activity. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And further on in the chapter in verse 53, Jesus speaks about this hour. This is your hour. He's speaking to those who have Come to arrest him. This is your hour and the power of darkness. So Luke is making it clear, I think, that the opportune time has come and that Satan has returned to try to bring Jesus down. But clearly, I think, as well, his strategy has changed. Because at the beginning of the gospel, Satan was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And now at the end of the gospel, he is trying to compel Jesus to the cross. Not as an act of obedience to his heavenly father, but because he has come 
under and been overtaken by evil forces. And so in this hour, there is an all-out assault upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this, it's this conflict between Jesus, God's obedient son, God's king, and Satan, that ancient serpent also called the prince of this world. And so you see, this story is a part of the bigger story of the Bible. It is explained to us by the promise in Genesis 3.15. That throughout the unfolding of history, there would be this ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That would climax to this conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent himself. And the serpent would bruise the heel of the Savior. And the Savior would crush the serpent's head. And what's so clear I think in this passage as well. Is that Satan despises everything that Jesus loves. That's, that's just basic Christianity. That's, that's Christianity 101. That Satan despises everything Jesus loves and Satan seeks to destroy the purposes of Jesus by bringing down those whom Jesus loves. And he does this in this passage, I think, in certain notable strategic ways. And it's important for us to, to understand this because the Bible teaches us that Satan has a limited number of strategies that he may use to bring disciples of the Lord Jesus down and express his hatred for Jesus. And he keeps on using them. He keeps on using them because they work. Because they've proven successful for him. You know, as you read through the New Testament, as you read through church history, and perhaps as you've experienced church life over the years, you learn that Satan keeps coming back to these same old strategies. Why should he change his strategies if they're effective? And so you've got this little band of disciples whom, whom Jesus loves, this, this little group that Jesus has formed around himself, and Satan is intent on bringing down the objects of Jesus' love. So what are Satan's strategies? What are the devices that Satan uses? I'm going to just take a look at three of them today as we look at this passage. I think the first one is obvious. The first strategy of Satan is to divide disciples. To divide disciples and break up the fellowship around Jesus. Now this, it's almost baffling when you, when you read this passage, isn't it? Jesus has just been speaking about giving his body and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for our salvation, for our eternal blessing. He has just turned the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. It's a huge moment in redemptive history. And almost like that, a dispute breaks out among the disciples about who is the greatest. One of them saying, I'm the greatest. And another, no, I'm the greatest. And I don't think we should lose sight of the evil one when we read in verse 24 that a dispute 
arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Actually, that's not the first time that this dispute has popped up among the disciples in the Gospel of Luke. A similar dispute broke out. Interestingly, here's the context. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to the cross, immediately a dispute broke out among the disciples about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. <coughs> and this, I think, <coughs> this sort of thing often happens when, when there's a crisis at hand. And to be sure, this is crisis hour. Jesus is about to be numbered with the transgressors. He's about to face the agony of the cross. And things are going to be very, very different for these disciples in the coming days. You watch what happens, though, maybe just to illustrate this, when there's a crisis in your family. That's crisis hour, and there's a real need for unity and cohesion and harmony. Isn't that very often when relations become strained to the breaking point? This is what's happening here. Satan has found his own little landing pad among these disciples. He's found a way of dividing them among one another and bringing discouragement to the heart of Jesus. You know, sometimes I think we're naive enough to think that Satan might cut us a break when things are going bad for us. When we're in a crisis. When things are really difficult. Sure, he might launch an all-out assault on our church family when things are going well. Perhaps if you know, people are coming out in droves and but we're, we're being faithful and fervent in prayer and we're storming the gates of heaven and praying down the blessings of God and uh, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and are seriously following him and, and all of their lives. We might say, sure, we could understand why Satan would launch an attack against a congregation like that, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't come after me in times of, when I'm down, when times of trouble would he? Well, friends, we've got to learn the lesson that that's exactly the time when he will strike. He is not a friend of those whom Jesus loves. And because he hates those who love Jesus, whether, whether it's times of blessing or times of struggle, Satan will persistently seek to divide the disciples of Jesus Christ from one another. We could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He's been doing this since the Garden of Eden. He did it with the first man and woman, with Adam and Eve. He spoiled the best thing, one of the best things God had given them, their commitment to one another. And then he went on to wreak havoc in their family life. And so this is a word to <coughs> the wise in the family of Jesus Christ. That one of Satan's primary strategies is to divide disciples, to wreck the harmony of those who belong to Jesus Christ. So what's the, what's the remedy? How, how are we going to stand fast and stand firm if this is one of Satan's strategies? Well, I think one of the things we, we can say is the primary way we're going to stand fast is by keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not because we have anything else in common, dear friends, that we are united. Some of us do, some of us don't. Frankly, we will not last long if all that holds us together are a shared set of hobbies or things we hold in common because then what, what can Satan do? Oh, oh, you like that. I don't like that. I really don't like that. And when it comes to church life, I know best. I know better. My way, not your way. Me first. I'm the greatest. And you see, this is what he was doing. This was the point. It's almost, from one perspective, it's unbelievable But this is exactly what happens. We take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his lifeblood to save us and to unite us together. And Satan diverts our eyes to look to ourselves and to look at each other and to demean rather than to serve and to say, me first, my way, not yours. And on that weakness, Satan prays regularly. So may God help us to learn that the way to stand firm against Satan in this way is by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And when we do look at one another to say, I'm going to serve him, I'm going to serve her first. Yes, him first, her first. And so Satan comes and and seeks to divide the disciples and as it were to say to Jesus, And you thought you were saving this bunch? All I have to do is come in and distract them for a moment. And it's as if everything you have done has come to nothing. Now here's strategy number two. He not only seeks to divide the disciples. He sifts the disciples. Now here's where our translation is, is really helpful, I think, in understanding what Jesus is saying. Because in verse 32... (coughs) Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The you here is plural. And the you's that follow are singular in reference to Peter. That's important for understanding this. So what Jesus is saying is this. Satan has demanded to have you, you all, all of you, to sift you like wheat. He wants to put you through the mill. It's reminiscent of... The book of Job, isn't it? When Satan comes before the throne of God and Satan, the accuser, says, you know that servant of yours, Job? You know the only reason he serves you is because of what he gets out of it. Take away the blessings and he will curse you. God says, show me. What does Satan do? He, He runs Job through the mill. He sifts Job like wheat. So you see what we're being taught here. Satan not only seeks to bring division, he he also sifts disciples with the goal of bringing them down. Of course, God's purposes are very different. Notice how he puts it. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you all that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you in particular, Simon, in order that your faith may not fail when you've turned again. Strengthen your brothers. Peter, though, is... A little bit confident in himself, isn't he? Lord, I'll never let you down. I'll never fail you. I'll go with you anywhere. Anywhere you go, I'll go. I'll even go with you to prison and to death if necessary. He's responding to Jesus without actually listening to what Jesus is saying. 
You ever done that with the Lord Jesus? Here's Peter's problem. He doesn't know himself as well as he should. Peter thinks he can stand on his own two feet. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, the rooster will not crow three times this day until you deny three times that you know me. And we know that word comes true. But we need to think about how it came true just for a moment. Should I try to imagine? Okay, I'll, I'll try to illustrate it this way. Let's say Kelsey and I go out to eat for dinner one night. And we're at the table and I order, I order a steak. And eventually the waitress brings my food out to me and I cut into my steak and immediately you just start hearing a commotion. And me yelling, what in the world is this? I ordered my steak medium rare and I asked for gravy on my mashed potatoes. Get this out of here. Get it out of my face. Don't you know what you're doing? The waitress comes over to get the plate, take it back to uh, whoever's cooking the food. And, but the waitress recognizes me and says, Hey, aren't you one of the pastors at Trinity Presbyterian Church? And then all you hear is a list of words I can't say out loud right now. And I say, I have nothing to do with that church. What Peter did was far, far worse than that. What Peter was saying is, I have nothing to do with that blank, blank Jesus of Nazareth. Now this is the Peter about whom Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And this is Peter who on the day of Pentecost will be the one to stand up and preach the gospel, to open up heaven to all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter who will open up the door to the Gentile world to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So you understand, Peter is going to be a leader in the early church. And so Satan is going to let hell loose on him. Because Satan wants to destroy the purposes of Jesus. Now, thank God few of us know failure in such a dramatic way. Although many of us, I'm sure, have grieved ourselves and, and our Lord Jesus to the point where we have wept bitterly over our sin. But the question I want you to think about with me for a minute is what do we do in such circumstances? Or in those less public circumstances where in your sin you discover the evil one coming to you and saying to you how how can you possibly belong to Jesus when you've done something like this do you really believe Jesus could ever love someone like you when this is in your life some of us have had that experience and we'd like to shut it off. So what do you do? My friends, it's, it is not going to help you for a minute to say to the evil one, well, I'm a member of Trinity Presbyterian Church. Take a look at all of the good things I've done. Take a look at all of the service I've rendered 
in Jesus' name because he's going to persist in pointing you to your sin and your guilt and your shame because that's what the accuser does. The hymn that we're going to sing at the end of our service, one of the lines, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do you do in that moment? We know this experience because it's part of the Christian life. So what are you going to say? Well, one of the things we can say is, along with Peter, we can say, Satan, Jesus said he'd pray for me. That he would make intercession for me. That my faith would not fail. That he would restore me. And that there would be future service and usefulness in his kingdom. Or remember how Paul puts it in in Romans 8 when he asks the question, Who is to condemn us? That's exactly what Satan seeks to do. To stir up the embers of a guilty conscience to communicate to us, you stand condemned. And our response is to say with Paul, who who can condemn us? It is Jesus Christ who died. It's Jesus Christ who has been raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father and whoever lives to make intercession For his own. That's our security friends. That he lives to intercede for us. And that his intercession cannot fail. And so it's an encouragement to know that Jesus is stronger. That even when Satan comes to divide. As we keep our eyes fixated on our Savior. We are preserved. And when he comes to sift us. That. The Lord Jesus lives to make intercession for us. But then there's a third strategy of Satan, (coughs) which is to blind us, to keep us from understanding the truth. Jesus says, listen, the crisis is is such. Don't don't you remember a while back when I sent you out on mission and I said, "Don't, don't bother with a knapsack. Don't worry about taking anything with you. I will provide for you in every way. Well, things are different now. We come to a different day now. This is a time of crisis. Satan has has all of his artillery aimed at me. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified, numbered with the transgressors. This is a time for all of the equipment you can find. I think it's clear that when Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, sell your your cloak, sell your shirt, and buy one, it's obviously a metaphor Because in that day, if you were to sell your cloak in order to buy a sword, you might be running around with a sword, but you wouldn't be running around with much else, if you catch what I'm saying. He's saying this situation has reached its climax, and and then a couple of them say, look, Jesus, we've we've got these couple of swords, and we're ready for the fight. They weren't even beginning to understand what the Lord Jesus was saying. He's been talking to them about the fact that the battle that we're in is not physical it's, 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 or geographical. It's a spiritual battle against the principalities and powers. So as Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. You know, so often we think if we can just wrestle the flesh and blood to the ground that the gospel will make advance, but it won't because the ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And here they are holding up a couple of, think about how silly this looks. 
Here they are saying, we've got a couple of swords, Jesus. We're ready for the fight. And Jesus shakes his head and just says, that's enough. How discouraging this must have been to, to the Lord Jesus. You don't, you don't think he, he's not human, do you? Don't think that just because he's God that he's shielded from discouragement and disappointment and pain. They've scarcely begun to understand and they're so blind. And Satan is, through these events, saying, Jesus, what, what, what about this? These are the men that you've spent the last three years teaching and look at how blind they are and you're going to die for them? You're going to go to the cross for them? Now the amazing thing is that's exactly what Jesus does because he loves them. Satan is really saying to him, Jesus, this bunch, they're not worth loving. You've poured yourself out for them for these three years and they are not worth it. But Jesus' heart resolve is, I will love them to the very end. And I will save them to the very end. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, maybe you remember that he says there are two great mistakes we can make when it comes to how we think about Satan. Number one, you don't believe that he exists. Number two, you think he exists, but you view him as some strange figure in red tights running around with a pitchfork. And you don't understand how dangerous he really is, how the church of Jesus Christ has been dirtied by all of the division that he has worked. How the saints have been driven to the point of despair because of the way he has sifted them, saying, sinner, 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 there is no hope for someone like you. Incidentally, I think we should just say this, that the Holy Spirit also tells you that you're a sinner. But not to drive you into the pit of despair, but to drive you into the arms of the Savior. So we need to come to terms with the fact that we have a real enemy without making too much or too little of him. And we need to remember that we have from this passage and passages to come that our Savior is far, far, infinitely greater And he is really our only hope for this fight. There is no way of standing in our own strength against such dark and powerful spiritual powers. His ability to divide the disciples Jesus loved. His ability to accuse those Jesus loves. And his ability to blind those Jesus loves so they just don't seem to get what Jesus is saying. But you see, the marvelous thing is that Jesus himself is able to unite us. Jesus himself is able to pardon us and shut the accuser's mouth. And Jesus himself is able to open our eyes so that our gaze is fixed upon him, the seed of the woman who has crushed the serpent's head and who along with him will have us bruise the serpent's head soon. You ever ever stop to think about how amazing the intercession of Jesus is for you? It, It really is astounding when you stop and you reflect upon it. All of 
all of my sin, despite all of my, all the ways I let Jesus down every single day. He lives to intercede for me. So that I, so that we, as the family of God, know that we rest secure. So may this be that the blessed unity of of this church family for which Jesus shed his blood, may it never be damaged. May the assurance that we enjoy as individual believers never be wholly lost. And may the struggles that we have individually to fully understand Jesus' purposes, may it never be due to spiritual blindness because Jesus unites us, because Jesus pardons us, and because Jesus opens our eyes so that we can see him clearly. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for such an incredible Savior and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that by the power of His Spirit in our lives, Lord, that we can can know that we are united together as we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. We can know that we are pardoned because of the intercession of Jesus, and we can have our eyes open to see Jesus clearly. We pray that you would help us to stand fast and to stand firm against these strategies of the evil one and others that we could mention. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.